This is the Limit of Podcast, and I'm your host, John Fukuda. If you've been following the podcast, you know we're focused on human-centered digital transformation and how operationalizing research insights and design can aid in digital product and service transformation work at scale. If you're running an organization with a digital presence, you've either faced or made the decision to implement a design system or several. And if you've tried, you've probably encountered varied degrees of success or failure. There's no question that a design system is a critical step in enabling design maturity as it unlocks efficiency, quality, and velocity to your digital outcomes. Just like any part of your digital transformation architecture, design systems can be fraught with organizational change and leadership challenges. And to that end, I brought our guest Dan Maul to talk to you about his latest book, Design That Scales, as well as some of his experience along the way that has played into successful digital transformation and digital outcomes. Dan is a husband, dad, teacher, creative director, designer, founder, and entrepreneur from Philly. He runs the Design System University, where he creates, collects, and curates curriculum, content, and community to help enterprise teams design at scale. He's also co-founded Great Job, a platform that helps parents and caregivers design their own handbook for raising amazing kids. Previously, Dan ran the design system consultancy Super Friendly for over a decade. Dan writes about design systems, process, leadership, and other issues on his danmall.com website, in his weekly newsletter, and on Twitter and Instagram. So Dan, welcome to the show. John, thank you for having me on the show. This has been a long time coming. We've known each other for many years now, and, and we haven't done this. So thank you for having me on the show. Awesome. Yes, equally excited to have you. We've met quite some time ago. I love the talk that you gave back in D.C., Design-ish. And one of the coolest things you brought up was the adjacent possible. And that concept has played in my mind a lot of different ways over the years. As we do this type of digital transformation work, we're always challenged to come up with, well, how might this technology play into this scenario? How might it affect this use case? And so that concept of the adjacent possible and allowing yourself to be playful and creative as you work through those problems, it's been a useful tool. Yeah, me too. I love that you brought up that reference. I, I have that book handy all the time. It's like right next to my desk here. It's Stephen Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From. And the idea of the adjacent possible is a form of a system that helps us create. So I love that idea. I think about it frequently as well. I think we have, we have a lot of that in common. So I mentioned your book, and I do want to put it out there. Dan's written a really great book on design systems. And one of the coolest things Dan did with the book is that he provided you with a speed run on what it takes to run up against some of the conversations and challenges in in implementing a, a design system, and then the insights that it unlocks along the way. So if you're thinking about design system and you've already got some preconceived ideas about it's a UI kit and it's a set of components and we got to connect it to our source code. All that stuff starts to go out the window once you start working in it and you start getting a lot of different mentality about what are you designing, who are you designing for, what context will these foundational elements play. And it's hard to get that glimpse unless you've been in the rut yourself putting a design system together. So I really encourage everyone who's thinking about it or faced with the challenges of a design system to take a look at Dan's book. You'll get those insights. He's given really good practical guides as well as a lot of resources you can turn to. So you've got a really good resource in the book itself. 
Today, I want to talk a little bit about your experiences in some of the less sexy consumer product-oriented design systems that you've worked with. And I know you've touched a lot of those systems. Just to have some frank conversations about what might be some of the challenges that any organization that's working on scaling their design or, or maturing the design organization and where a design system and the conversations you've had really play well into addressing business challenges or addressing organizational culture around how design maturity can be unlocked with uh, design systems work. Yeah, totally. I think the consumer facing stuff is really exciting because it's the thing that we all see. Uh, so I think that that's the stuff that we all talk about. And one of the things that I was excited to talk to you about here was the stuff that we don't see because that is a big part of, of most systems. I know probably a lot of us have seen those diagrams of like the iceberg where there's like the little tip sticking up above the water and then this gigantic mass underneath the water. And I think every organization that I've ever worked with has that, that, that gigantic mass underneath the water. And what I really like about design systems and what is so exciting and challenging about that work is that you're tackling that most of it is the underwater stuff. You know, most of it is the stuff that, that people don't see. And all of it is really about user experience. And so, you know, when I, when I work with organizations that manage, you know, hundreds of digital products for, I think for the, the lay person, they're like, how could an organization have hundreds of digital? I mean, there's, you know, there's probably, there's one website, there's maybe one or two apps, you know, that any organization can make. And like, that's three, like, why, how are we talking about hundreds? And I've worked with organizations that build their own, you know, shipping and freight management systems, their inventory systems. I've worked with some clients that have built their own internal email product, you know, that they use because they can't use Gmail or Gmail for enterprise or, you know, anything like that. And so all of these digital and digital experiences are things that their employees and their constituents have to use. And if they're not making those in a good way, they're providing a really poor experience to their folks. And of course, if their folks have bad experiences, then they're going to not be able to make good experiences for their end customers. So I think I think a lot of design system work and system work in general really exist in the like what happens internally that allows us to actually make good experiences or bad experiences for, for the end consumers that, that are interacting with our business. Absolutely. And I like the iceberg diagram, but I think today's analog to that is like a service blueprint. If you've seen that, you have like the front of the house, which is such a skinny line of workflow around like where the consumer touch points. And in the back office, you have like this huge map of business processes and yes. internal systems that they're all like everybody has to operationalize that customer experience. And so there's a, like an enormous set of tools back there that every organization sort of cobbled together, either from off the shelf components and systems to, you know, full bore homebrewed, you know, applications and whatnot. And to the extent that you've thought from a design perspective about the entire customer through the employee experience and how does it all come together for, you know, all the things that are digitally good about velocity, quality of experience and all the things. Have you gotten into a scenario like that where you've said, listen, guys, you're talking about the customer experience, but here's the 25 other things that are broken about this workflow. I'm, I mean, honestly, I haven't seen a lot of folks doing that in, in digital. And I think that that's actually an appropriate thing. Because if you think about like any startup uh, or any enterprise right, that's on the other side of that scale, 
if the choice is between do we prioritize our end customers or do we prioritize our internal team, prioritizing the end customers makes sense. You know, I think it's a, it's a logical idea that like, all right, who, if we can only pick one to have the best experience, let's pick our end customers and we will suffer the, you know, the, the poorer experiences because we're the ones that can deal with it a little bit more. I think that makes sense. You know, and if you think about even, even standard startup UX patterns, things like Wizard of Oz, you know, things where like things like concierge patterns, like for example, when you when you offer a service to a, a client that looks automated or to a customer that looks automated, and yet the way that you do it is you fulfill it manually, you know, be under the hood or kind of behind the behind the curtain. It makes sense because that's how businesses thrive, you know, it, it, at least initially until they can put those automations and those dynamic systems in place. So I think it, it makes sense. I think it comes from a good place. Um, a lot of where I actually see this stuff happening is outside of digital and, and you know, to the adjacent possible reference. Like I look to some of those examples. There's a great book that I haven't finished fully yet, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm part of the way through. It's called Patients Come Second. And it's the idea of how hospitals run. And there's a particular brand of hospitals where the, the ownership, the leadership group is, says like, we're going to take care of our employees more than we're going to take care of our patients. Because the theory is, if we can take care of our employees, then our patients will get a good experience. But if our employees are suffering, mm-hmm. then of course, they're going to pass that suffering unintentionally onto to the patients. And I, I think that that's such an interesting concept. When I ran my agency, I tried that out as well, you know, which is like, I, our my agency was called Super Friendly. And I used to have a, a mantra that said super friends first, which is kind of antithetical to the idea of like the customer is always right. The customer comes first, all that kind of stuff. But my thought was, if we can treat our folks really well, if they can be well paid, well supported, mentored, sponsored, taken care of, all that stuff, then of course, we're going to be able to pass on that good experience to, to others. I think the same is true in parenting. The same is true in business. You know, so all of those things, like I think I, I, I do think, though, it's an unusual idea, which is why I don't see it a lot. Right. I think it's true in a lot of organizations, like where you have a lot of stress on the teams that are delivering product and they're being asked to continuously integrate and throw new features out, sometimes cannibalize their own work. And a lot of that stuff can be emotionally charged for the internal teams. People burn out quickly. And if those are the people that are sort of at the expense of a good customer experience, are you actually building your organization the right way? Exactly. And that's part of like, we talk about design systems and we talk about how it's a useful tool in terms of efficiency. And I think a lot of the things that are going into thoughtful design system work just make sense when you think of, well, do we actually need to recreate this component four or five times? Are there variants we can in- include? What are the tokenization that makes sense so that if we're going through you know brand revisioning, that type of work is easier? The, it, it's obvious once you get into the work, but there's also a lot of pitfalls in there. And I think you address those in, in the book. I guess the reason I'm bringing this about in this part of the conversation is because you talked about what does it take for the team to feel like they're getting equally good experience. And a lot of that does have to do with how are we tooling our collaboration and how are we supporting it uh, from an infrastructure standpoint so that we're having better conversations and more meaningful And if the ultimate goal is serving the customer, are we even focusing on the right design challenges that have, that our customers are encountering rather than redesigning buttons? So yeah, I I think there was a lot there in what I said, but the main crux of it is that the system and the tooling and all those things, they're, they're there. And if you want them, you can start to implement any part of a design system today. That's not the hard part, right? The hard part is 
well, what does this mean for us organizationally? What are the challenges that we should anticipate? And how can we be kind to each other to get through these challenges in a way that's going to ultimately lead to success? Yeah, you know, this is part of the reason that I wanted to write this book is that it's not because there's no good design system book out there. There's a ton of good design system books out there. A lot of them focus on the tooling side, which is why the book that I wanted to write is a book about stories, you know, and a book about going like, okay, if we prior- if we prioritize the tooling, that's fine. If we over-prioritize the tooling, which I think I see a lot of people doing in design systems, I think that becomes a problem because tooling is not the hard part about design design system work, right? It's actually the easy part. And I don't mean to trivialize that because the tooling part is difficult, but what's even more difficult is getting it adopted into the grain of an organization. Like that's the hard part. And so whenever I work with teams or whenever I'm coaching, you know, design system folks and and leaders, it's like, we should spend as much time as we can on the hard part, on whatever the hardest part is, we should give ourselves the most time to work on that. And what's the hardest part? It's the adoption part. It's the cultural change part. It's the digital transformation part. So to spend six months working on tooling and then at the end of six months emerging with like, hey, we've got a great tool and now we have to figure out how to, how to get it ingrained in the organization. Well, we just lost six months that we could have been working on this thing. So I think that's the, that's the shift that I want to see made in our industry is like, let's start from day one thinking about at least if not taking some actions around the idea of incorporating something into our organization. What does that look like? Who needs to be on, on board? Um, how, what does it serve? What is the purpose of, of all of that? Like none of that has to do with tooling. The tooling should help support some of that stuff. But when teams hop right into tooling and they don't know what the North Star is, they don't know what our business metrics are. They don't know how this particular tool helps us in this area of our business. And the tooling can only be so specific. And that's why design systems end up being abstractions to the level that no one wants them and no one uses them. Everybody builds a bunch of buttons and cards and tables and footers and headers and, you know, and all that stuff. And so does material design and so does bootstrap and so does, you know, all these great tools out there. And the problem is not, are they abstracted? Well, the problem is, can they address a specific problem? And that's where teams start Mm -hmm. to go, oh, material design doesn't solve our specific banking challenge. Of course it doesn't. It wasn't made for a bank. You know, it was made for a digital organization, you know, a big technical organization like Google. And so I think the closer we get to the problems and the the more we, the more time we give ourselves to, to go, how can we ingrain this into our organization? What is the regular flow of our organization? And how do we merge that into that work stream so that it feels natural, so that it doesn't feel like a ton of change for people to adopt? You know, that's the thing that I think we need a lot of time to figure out. Yeah. And you do bring an analogy into your book. You talk about the Ford T Model T assembly line and how like many of the components that were on that assembly line, we can actually get into a car today and maybe get into one of those cars from from yesterday. And the experience is more or less the same because those core components were there. You know, today's experience accounts for things like, you know, auto windshield with moisture detection and stuff like that. That was a really good analogy. I also feel like there's another aspect to this, which you bring into your elaboration, but it's more that you had the core elements of a vehicle. And I'm thinking of design systems and the design system culture work as more of the combine where you had like the core engine that can run all the things on the farm. What are all the adapters and, and all the other parts that are, that are part and parcel of your entire life cycle and the workflow of the work? You start talking about how design system work impacts the organization's need to think of content and content types, almost from an object-oriented user experience process of like, let's think about where this thing shows up 
at what places for the user and in what ways so that it's the most meaningful and best experience. That's the type of stuff that a design system can start to unlock if you've done it right. If you stop paying attention to how many cards do we need and how many variants and start thinking about what are all the things we hadn't considered yet. And so that was a brilliant cadence where you open with, well, here's, here's the tooling and the possibility, but here they start the conversations you just start having almost immediately. And it's hard to see that from the outset. You know, when you start looking at like the checkboxes of design maturity and you're like, oh, a design system has to be in place. Nobody tells you. It's almost like getting married and having kids. Nobody tells you the stuff that's going to come on the back end of that and how eventually you'll get there. But it's not without challenge and failure. Right? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think a lot of that is natural too, which is like, if you, you know, I, I got married when I was 24. My wife and I got, you know, we're both 24 when we got married. So it's like, if you would have told us, hey, here's some stuff that you should look out for when you're 40, it's like, well, I, I don't know that we would have been ready to hear it, right? So it doesn't mean that the information wasn't there. It's just that we weren't in the in the space to be able to hear that. Or like, here's what you should think about when you're having kids. It's like, we're like 10 years out from having kids. You know, that's like, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the same thing is true with, you know, most design systems start with practitioners. They they start with designers and engineers who want to just make their work a little bit better. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that that's fine. That's a different kind of design system than a design system that a big enterprise that manages, you know, thousands of digital products and has tens of thousands of employees. It's a different kind of system. And I talk about that a little bit in the book, too, that there's not just one kind of design system. Your design system could be a process. That's all it could be. You might not have any tools. Your design system could be here are the five steps that we use from project to project or sprint to sprint. And that would be a great system. That's fine. Or your design system could be a whole software tool that gets package managed and version controlled and, you know, all that kind of, that's a different kind of design system for a different kind of team. So I think that part of this is most of, almost all of the kinds usually start with a designer and or an engineer going like, how can I design tables less? (laughs) You know, how can I, how can I not design Mm -hmm. tables for the hundredth time? And that's, I think that's a good motivation. And if you're, if your intention is that your design system stops there, you know, solves that problem and then that's that, that's great. But I think a lot of folks get into it and go, we, we're going to make a bunch of tables and the intention of our design system is digital transformation. And it's like, well, solving a bunch of tables does not get you a digital transformation. A different kind of system gets you di- uh, digital transformation. And so I think that that's why the more mature design system practices that big organizations need, they need more than a designer and an engineer. They need business analysts. They need strategists. They need directors. They need product owners. They need writers, content people, UX people. Like We need all of the parties at the table in order to have the large Larger conversation that incorporate all the larger parties. We, you know, the, I think representation mm-hmm. there is super important, like it is in lots of areas. You know, we can't expect a designer and engineer to solve business problems that are out of their purview. You know, with with a system, and I think that's like one of the reasons that a lot of design systems, especially ones that are understaffed, they don't accomplish that goal because how can you expect a designer and, and an engineer? to solve a problem that a business analyst is trained to solve, you know, or a strategist is, is mm-hmm. trained to solve, or a writer is trained to solve. They just don't have the experience, and I don't think they, they, they should be expected to be, uh, to have that experience. And so I think we need to, to, to staff representationally to the problems that we're trying to solve. Absolutely. One of the things that you just brought up there, and I thought it was really cool how you did this in the book too, is you allow that definition of a design system to be flexible enough to fit the purpose. And that's, it's an important perspective to take on design systems because not everybody's at the right level of a maturity for the full blown, you know, what you just alluded to is at the enterprise level when you're at the scale where that's necessary. It allows you to start even at the smallest, you know, pilot project 
and just with two people kick some things around till you get it working the right way all the way through to like having business architects getting into this into the design system and you know working through some of the the more core challenges of the organization and that's a really nice framework because it gives you the Jeet Kune Do, you know, Bruce Lee technique to flow into whatever the, the design challenge needs to be at the, at the given time. And I think that's the one thing that I think separates you from the dogmist mentality of a design system to let's just look at some of the problems that are, are here embedded in this organization and how can we use design and design systems to work through them. And it's almost like what you wanted to have happen from design thinking, but people got too dogmatic about it and it sort of broke down almost the way SAFE does for agile workers. It's like, yeah, you have this framework, but not everything is necessary at all times for, for this specific problem. So giving, giving yourself space and forgiveness to say, hey, we're going to just look at this discrete set of things versus we need to boil the ocean now and today. You know, for, for what it's worth, that has tracked with the evolution of me as a person, you know, as well. I, I've, I've always been a pragmatist. I've, I've almost never been a, a, you know, somebody who's like really big on, on dogma. But I did used to say, you know, a few years ago, a design system is this thing and it is not these other things, right? A UI kit is not a design system. A component library is not a design system. A design system is this other stuff. And my intention was to create clarity from that. But the impact that I had that I was receiving from people, you know, as I got feedback on that was they just felt discredited when I would say, you know, that thing that you really thought you really worked hard on over the last year, that's not a design system. They were like, well, screw you, buddy. Like, you know, that sucks. And and what I've learned over the years is like, that can be a design system. It's just a different kind than what, what other people are talking yeah. about. There's room, there's room for all of that stuff. And I find that, at, you know, as a person, the more pragmatic I become, the more friends I make, you know? So it's like, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a useful technique for me. And then the other part of that, the science part of that is if, I don't know if you're familiar with Goodhart's law, but it's something that I've learned recently. Goodhart's law says mm-hmm. when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to become a good measure. And I think that what I've seen in, in at least in design systems and, and in other places, all the examples that you mentioned are great examples. Safe, you know, like like uh, like all of those kinds of things. They become targets instead of just a measure of how we're doing mm-hmm. as an organization. Like we want to have a design system. Why? To have a design system. And it's like, well, no, 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 that's not, that's not the point of it. The point of it is to help transform the way that we work. The point of it is to make us more efficient, sure, make us more consistent. The point of it is to make our work easier. The point of it is so that we're less stressed at work. We're like, that's the point of the design system. And we lose sight of that when instead our thing is 98% adoption or, you know, X amount of components. Like it, it becomes, if it becomes a target, then it's no longer pragmatic. We're doing it for the sake of doing it. And then we lose sight of why we're actually doing it in the first place. And we can't have transformation, you know, digital, personal, whatever. Otherwise, we can't have that stuff if we start to lose sight of why we're actually doing something in the first place. Yeah. I think that's an important point because you can get lost and for good reason too. Because uh, you want to look at what are the user metrics and those returns that we're getting out of our design system that on, on the consumer side, but you also want to be measuring them on your velocity gains and all that other stuff. So like, how is it impacting our cost centers? But that's not the purpose of implementation, right? That's outcomes. And if you're getting those outcomes, you should be glad for it. Yeah. But the real gains are you have systematic ways to approach design challenges that take people out of the ruts and getting into like the wireframing because we don't need those anymore 
to some extent. Yes, um, exactly. And yeah, so talking about that, there's been a lot of philosophy on design systems. You know, Brad Frost's atomic approach, I thought was useful. You know, it's gotten us to a point where we now can have conversations about the elements of design, you know, universal components, universality of design. And there will be times where that's, you know, the right conversation. There'll be times where it's absolutely the wrong conversation. What are the things that you feel like you run into from getting people's perspective in the right place, whether it's like the pairing of a designer and an engineer that are just going to kick the tires and, and figure shit out versus I need to bring this entire enterprise organization along because this is going to be better for their outcomes, that type of thing. Where, where do you find yourself spending a lot of the, l- let me help you see this a little differently? And, yeah. and what, what do those conversations look like? I'm a big believer in, uh, in forests and trees. You know, so like... At any given time, in any given project, sprint, year, quarter, you know, whatever it is, I think there are people should be present who can see the trees and people who are, who are present that can see the forest. And, you know, that, that's, that's part of what's difficult about the idea of design system. And it's also part of what's liberating about design system is it's two parts. It's design and system. And a lot of practitioners focus, they over-index on the system part. It's like, well, just fine, cool, great. Like, be focused on that. Work on the props and the APIs and the Figma files and all that stuff. Somebody needs to be present to go like, and so here's the design part. You know, and design is basically just doing something on purpose. So what are we trying to do on purpose with this system? It's not make a system. <laughs> That's not the purpose of this, of this system. We're trying to make a system to do something in particular. And so though a lot of those frameworks that you had mentioned, they, they, they are helpful in that, but a lot of them skew one way or the other or lean towards more, one more than the other. Atomic design is actually more a systemic philosophy than it is about a design philosophy. It's both. You know, mm-hmm. Sophia Prater's uh, object-oriented UX, it, it skews more towards system, but it does have elements of design, but it leans one way or the other depending on what part of it you're talking about. So these frameworks, frameworks are really helpful. And I, what I try to do when I'm working with the team is I go, cool, it's great that you're looking at that. Are we over-indexing somewhere though? Like, is there something that we're missing? Because, you know, are, are we over-indexing on the system part? So then we need to infuse a little bit more of the design part. Are we over-indexing on the design part? Well, we need to bring more of the system part. And I think that this is true at a, at a macro scale and a micro scale scale in our industry, you know, we have skewed so long toward the design part and then just by any means necessary. And so it makes sense that design systems over the last decade or so have been like, can we do this in a more systematic way so that we're not reinventing the wheel every time? That makes a lot of sense. But I think that the, we've pendulum swung a little bit too far in that direction and we could, we could use a little bit more balance. So usually when I'm working with a team, I'm trying to observe like, what is the perspective of this team? Are we leaning too heavily in one direction? Where can we get balance on, on some of these things? A team of practitioners is going to lean heavily nowadays to the system, the system part. And so we need to go, we need to bring strategists, we need to bring VPs, we need to bring directors, you know, into that mix to go. And here's the forest, you know, that we're trying to operate within. So that's generally where I'm spending my time is going like, where are we leaning too hard on, on one area or the other? And how can we bring that into a little bit more balanced perspective? Yeah. And so you're bringing this up. I got a question pegged for the conversations you have with C-suite members when they're either coming to you or you're in an engagement where you need to bring them into the fold. What are some of the misconceptions you feel like you've run up against in the C-suite 
when it comes to design systems and how do you work your way through those? Yeah, I think there's a lot. And I think one of the things that I've learned in working with C-suite folks is that they're not a monolith, right? It's not like, oh, C-suite mm-hmm. needs this, you know, thing one, thing two. Like C-suite, is, are, they are people too. You know, and and so they come with all of the quirks and baggage and wounding and experience and all that stuff that that other folks do as well. And so, like, I've seen a range of things, and I've I've usually gone in going like, oh, this is what C suite needs to hear. And then I go talk to some people, and they already know that thing, you know. And I talk to some other people, mm-hmm. and they have no idea about that thing. And it's like, right, they're people too. Got it. Okay, you know. So, so for yeah. some for some people in a C suite, they've never heard of a design system, and they need to be educated on what it is. And a lot of times, they need to unlearn what it is. And I see the same thing true of practitioners too. Some, some practitioners think that this is a, you know, this is what a design system is and they, they need to unlearn some of that because those are limiting beliefs. So an example of a C-suite belief of what a design system is, is it is an automation machine that allows us to get by with less staff. And it's like, ah, uh, it could be, yeah, but that's not the right way or that's not a good way to take advantage of what the design system is. I don't know if it's the right way or wrong way, but that's not a good way to take advantage of all the benefits that a design system brings. So for those those folks who have the, that belief, I spend my time with those folks in the C-suite going like, let me tell you what all the benefits are and how you make the, the most of it. Right, like you, you can mm-hmm. you can actually increase retention with the design system. Did you know that? And they go, oh, ha- what? What are you talking about? How is a design system a retention machine? I go, well, because you can use it as a relief for people in in work. And they go, that's not at all how I was thinking about it. And so I'll spend my time there talking with them about that. Um, for others. Other folks in the C-suite, some some of them want to just cover their butts. You know, like, I just need to know that the team is doing work that is useful so that I can say that my team worked on something that is useful. Other people in the C-suite want to roll up their sleeves and get in with the team. They just don't know how because they're not practitioners or not practitioners anymore. So, again, those are two very Mm -hmm. different kinds of people in the C-suite. For those that are like, I'm a director, I'm a VP of design or engineering or whatever, I haven't touched React ever, you know, even though my team is proficient with it or, you know, the last time I was in a design tool was in Photoshop. I don't know about this Figma stuff. Like, where do I jump in and and, and help right. support with design systems? For some of those folks, I'm working with a team right now where I'm working very closely with a, a design VP and he's like, what do I do with the team? And I go, run interference for the next three weeks. Like, that's your job. That's what you can do. And he goes, okay, like, great. Like, so what does that mean? Well, it means making sure that no one looks too closely into what this team is doing, because if they do, it's going to look too messy. Even though the team is doing something important, it's going to look really messy and they're going to get worried. So your job is to make sure that they look somewhere else, you know, for the next three weeks until we can put out the next status report that says, here's what we've been working on. Here's the success, the success that we've had. And he's like, all right, cool. So I think, you know, depending on the person, their skill set, their experience, their level of effort, what their, their time. I think the conversations are as different as they are with practitioners. That's funny you bring that up because everyone thinks there's a, a turnkey element to design systems, right? And that there's no need for a runway, but there actually is. Like you need the lead time and you need failure to be a part of your lead time. And you do need someone to give you cover while that's all happening. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Or it just needs to be made clear to people that like, this is a messy start. The design process is still a design process. One of the first things I do when I'm working with the team, when I have the liberty to do it, is I tell the team for the next four weeks, no one expects any output from us. And man, the size of relief that I, see, I visually see on a Zoom call, you know, and can hear when people go, oh, no one's expecting anything for the next four weeks from us. Like we have that air cover. We have that, you know, someone running interference that will not 
now I've got some breathing room, we can really do some good work, right? And that's a thing that that both scares them a little bit, but also energizes them, you know, in a way that like, oh, I get to do that because a lot of teams don't have that. And so one of the things that I ask for when I work with the team is I go for the first for, for the first four weeks that we're working. Is it possible that no one expects anything from this team? No output, no reports, no nothing while we figure some stuff out. And for some teams, it's like impossible. No chance. No way. And for other teams, it's like, okay, we can't make that investment right now, but let us work on it for the next six months. And then in six months, we can do that exercise, you know, like, because some, and so like that, that idea of, we, we have the air cover, we have the time, we can figure stuff out. Like that's the way that you start any good practice. You know, if you start a practice of working out and going to the gym, you're not going to see results in the first two weeks. There's no way, you know, you might have a little bit more energy here and there, but like, no way, absolutely not. You start yoga or whatever, any practice, you know, it takes a while for it to take just for you, just for you to catch the habit. If somebody watched you work out for the first time and you've never worked out before, they're going to be like, that person's a clown. So that's why you don't want people to see you the first time you work out because you don't know how how to use machines, you know, at the gym, or you don't know how to do a push-up properly, or you don't know how to, you know, how to run in a way that you or walk up the stairs in a way that doesn't let you catch your breath. So it's like, like it's messy at first, and it's messy in the middle too. And I think one thing that complicates that is when people watch us in the mess, we get very self-conscious about it. And so if we have some, some like, can we just do this in private? You know, can I do this with my my trusted group? You know, for a couple of weeks, I think it, it brings a lot of confidence that comes with that. Yeah, it's important too because a lot of the people you're working with, they've seen opportunities for where you're going to unlock real change that's going to be meaningful for the team. But it takes a lot to get to those conversations. And people forget about the complexity of a design system. It's not just the components and the elements, but it's locking it all together so that you have efficient workflows. It's coming up with the right rituals and governance models around how is this thing going to actually mechanize once it's in place. So it's everything from those foundational conversations through the impact to a culture of sorts. And so, yeah, if you can expect to get there in four weeks, I mean, that's, that even sounds like a miracle. <laughs> right. I've heard it take a year or so you know, yeah. to get it right. Totally. So, so that's great. And you're probably also running to this, and I, and I think you touched on it in the book, but I, I want to hear maybe from you on what you've seen and you know, realize we're all still in a state of flux here. But what are the opportunities and pitfalls where it comes to AI, because everybody's expecting you know the role that AI is going to play in this to be such a massive impact. But you have to approach that, I think, like the way you've done everything, a sense of caution and open-mindedness. So just love to hear your thoughts on main design systems. Yeah, so I, I'm certainly not an AI expert. I have limited experience <laughs> with it. My overall experience is positive, and my overall outlook on it is positive. But as with anything, any any extreme of the spectrum is a terrible spot to be in. You know, like, can AI take over the world and create some dangerous things for humans? Absolutely. Can AI be, like, the worst thing that we've ever invented and, and you know, and, and just be useless? Like, sure, yes. Somewhere in the middle could be useful. In a lot of ways, I think that AI is the fruition of what we've been asking for for design with design systems, because the premise, part of the premise of design systems is um, we outsource the commoditized work. You know, if we've been designing tables a lot, why do we have to do that again? 
we can just put that training somewhere and then that somewhere should be able to output it for us much faster than, than we have to, than we can now without us thinking about mm -hmm. it too much. You know, we might have to configure a couple things. I mean, isn't that what AI is? You know, it's like we give it training data and we say, now that you know it, spit it back at me and I'll make a couple of tweaks, you know, to get the result that I want. So in a lot of ways, I think it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the, fru the fruition of what we've been looking for. It's like, help us commoditize the stuff that's actually not important to our work. You know, and I think that the challenge with it is that it, it, it came a lot faster than we thought it would. And all of a sudden it's here. Like, and it's, it's not like, we, like people haven't been experimenting with AI for years. They have, but it seems like mm -hmm. in the last six months, all of a sudden, you know, chat GPT, like really proliferated AI in terms of, of how the public accesses it. And so I think it, it got here a lot faster than we thought it would. I think that we thought it was farther away. And so here it is, and we're now facing it, you know, head on. I think that's a little bit scary, a little bit tough. But I think also, you know, AI gives us a lot of the things or potentially can give us a lot of the things that we've been asking for for a long time that our tooling wasn't up to until AI. So an example of that is with design systems, a lot of folks have, they build a reference website that's like, here is the, the source, source of truth that we can use to consult things. But that's not the real promise of design systems. The real promise of design systems is just-in-time documentation that comes into our work in the environments yeah. where we work in, not, not to go somewhere else and have to go and find something. And so, you know, I've seen just even in the last few days, I've seen a bunch of tweets of people going, I trained ChatGPT on my design system. And now anytime I want something, I can just ask ChatGPT and it'll give it to me. So now imagine the next step mm -hmm. of that is somebody builds a Figma plugin for it. I don't even have to go to ChatGPT. I'm in Figma working on my work. I asked ChatGPT to give me the documentation for this component and it gives it to me and tells me how to configure it. The next level of that is the Figma plugin even configures it for me. I I don't even need to ask it, you know, what to do here. So like the more we can bring the, the, the documentation and the references into our work, into the environments that we work in, the more productive we're going to be. And AI unlocks a lot of that stuff too. So I'm hopeful about it. It is certainly a dangerous, untested, you know, there's definitely a lot of things that can go wrong there. I think I like to be an optimist about it. Certainly I'm probably a bit naive about it as well, mm -hmm. but I think it brings us a lot of the things that we've been asking for. It just doesn't look the way that we thought it would look. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that you're just demonstrating to me, and it's an answer to a lot of the fear and uncertainty and doubt that a lot of designers have been having when it comes to AI is that there's so much more rich opportunity in here for you as a design expert or somebody who's like, these are the things that actually matter, you know, not just to the consumer experience, but to the design experience, to the design collaboration and documentation necessary for good design to happen and for scalable systems to, to be in place. Not every generative AI is going to be thoughtful in that way, right? They can spit out a, a good guess at what a, an interface could look like, but they're not going to tell you the do's and don'ts and the why's and the how's and, and all that stuff. Yeah, so. I would I would 100% you know, endorse that and, and agree with that. It's like, I don't expect AI to be thoughtful. That's not what it's good at. Mm -hmm. I don't need it to be thoughtful. Mm -hmm. I'm good at being thoughtful. Designers are good at being okay. thoughtful. People are good at being thoughtful. Sometimes, not all the time, right? But <laughs> that's our skill that I don't expect AI to have anytime soon. Once it has that, that's really scary ter territory now. Like sentient AI, <laughs> right, sentient right. generative AI is like, but like we're the sentient ones right now. Now, at least we're the ones who can be thoughtful. I don't, what I can't do as fast as a machine is generate, generate quantity. Mm -hmm. So yes, mm -hmm. it takes me a long time to make one interface. And I think that's a, that's a tough thing for designers is the more time we spend on something, the more important we think it is. 
And so if I spend mm-hmm. a lot of time designing one interface because it takes a long time to design one interface, well, I'm going to take stock in that interface and think that, well, yeah, I'm going to advocate for it. But if I could take that same amount of time and generate 100 interfaces, well, that seems unrealistic for a designer, but not unrealistic for AI. Hey, hey AI, yeah. here are all the components I have in my, in my system. I want to build a dashboard for tracking finances. Give me 100 different interfaces of what this could look like. It'll do that in 10 minutes, you know, less than that, right. one minute. You know, like here they are, yeah. here it is in Figma or here it is in, you know, JPEGs, whatever it is. And then I can look at that and evaluate and be thoughtful and pick the things that I want and discard the things that I don't want and remix again, adjacent possibles. Like we're creating our own adjacent yeah. possibles, you know, and, and AI allows us to do that faster than we would on our own. And I think, th- you know, those are the kinds of possibilities that I'm like, great. An assistant that an intern that doesn't complain, that has unlimited capacity, you know, that like that will give me any variation of something that I want and has the knowledge. That sounds incredible. Incredible. That sounds like a great tool. Absolutely. So I think that's the right answer. You know, it's evolving. So we're all paying attention with interest, taking it out of AI's hands and looking very squarely. And you kind of talked about the level of self-importance that comes with generating an, an interface. You also talk about how ego can be toxic in the book. And I want to talk about that because when you're flexible enough with your definition of a design system, it's inclusive of the culture that comes with it. And so you have to think about what's psychological safety, what's toxicity, and where does ego get in the way? And it's part of our institutional maturity arc that we're on from early designer, come creative director, and that art director studio mindset where what you say goes and it's very much about the hero designer to now opening it up to more egalitarian and considerate of an ecosystem. So I thought I'd give you space to just talk about that for a minute. Yeah, totally. I think this is a, a particularly prescient topic in terms of design systems because I think a lot of people join or want to be on a design system team to be the design police. Uh, to be able to to be the ones to set the standards, to create the best practices, to get to enforce the things that other people do and don't do and be and you know chastise the rule breakers and and things like that and it's like man nobody likes the design police <laughs> like no nobody like nobody likes them they yeah. suck yeah. and and i think that's not the role of a design system team anyway like and so in a lot of my work and and you know in the book a bit i try to to reframe the idea of a design system is you're not creating the best practices you are collecting the common practices it's not about best practices it's about co- it's about what what exists in your system already in your organization already and then incrementally making that stuff better over time at scale you know mm-hmm. the 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 at scale part is the new part you know, because before we, that was the job of a designer and engineer and, and pr- practitioners anyway, is like we our job is to make stuff better for our customers. That was, you know, that was always the gig. But now we have the tools and the ability and the reach to do it at scale. You know, every business that I see now talks about hundreds of million dollars in, in annual recurring revenue and, you know, a billion dollar market and, you know, hundreds of millions of consumers like we've never been able to operate at this scale ever in history. Like to mm-hmm. so quickly, so it's a yeah. new time, and that's why systems are. I think that's why design systems are in the zeitgeist right now, is because they are useful at that scale. And you know, before we didn't have that scale, we didn't need to solve that problem. And I think what comes with that scale is like, oh, but I get to direct what happens for our hundred million customers. Like that's you know that's something that in the wrong hands, you know, that is incredibly mm-hmm. toxic. And we've seen lots of examples of that in our society over the last couple of years. And you know, that will only get 
get more and more deep if we don't start to reverse the way that we think about this stuff or reframe some of the way that we think about this stuff. So instead of joining a design system team to be like, I get to set the standards, it's like, no, it's the it's the most humble work. It's not the most it's not the most powerful work. You know, design system work is janitor work, in my opinion. And I don't say that in any uh, any derogatory way. You know, I say that in a in a humble way. I love, it's. Uh, I think Jose Torre at, at Shopify talks about design system work being cl- the closest to gardening. And I'm, I love that mm-hmm. metaphor that like gardening work is, is <laughs> it's humble work. You get dirt on your fingernails. You, you know, you smell bad at the end of the day. You're on your hands and knees <laughs> doing stuff. You know, that's how you make something grow. You don't direct it into growing. You don't chastise it into growing. You know, you cultivate it into growing. You plant seeds, you water them, you know, you get them out of the sun if it's too much sun. You, you tie them to a straight stick if you need them to grow less crooked. Like that's, that's humble work. You know, it's dirty work. Not a lot of people like doing that stuff. And I think that's the, that's the antidote to, or that's one of the antidotes, I think, to, you know, this toxicity that we see is we need more people doing the humble work, not more people doing the, the egotistical work, not the people to, not everyone who wants to tell everybody what to do. That's, that's everyone. Everyone wants to tell everybody what to do, right? Everybody wants to be in a position of power. There's not a lot of people who are like, I'll cultivate, I'll water this thing every day. You know, like, and I think that, that we, I think that's what design system work is, at its core. And I think that when we reframe it to be, oh, we're, we're the standards group. It's, I think it, it has a generally that I've seen that have a negative effect. Right. And there will be a need for governance and there's a need for an operative flow to how things are getting in and out of the design system, how you're deprecating things. And that needs to be a conversation that's had not just internally, but also watching the consumers and their behavior with those components and and the things that like are working and not working. And if there's any ego involved in that, yeah, feelings are going to get hurt and you're probably going to make a mess of things. Yeah. And I also think in your book, you talked a little bit about how we've come from a world where we used to talk about define and design. And now it's more like collecting and curating. You had like a segment in in the book. And I think that's an important shift where you're like, we've already gone through the business problems, let's get the best of them together and let's look at how we can resolve this systematically in a way that scales across our entire ecosystem. Yeah. And so thinking about that and where the design system sits, what do you see might be the future of where organizations are headed? I think we're at an inflection point where we get to affect that. So I think this is why, you know, this is partially why I wanted to write a book about design systems now, you know, as opposed to five years ago or five years from now, you know, is, is that like, it's a good inflection point for us in, in how we treat this work. One of the reasons that design systems don't take hold or, or get canceled, you know, as like the first thing on the chopping block when there is financial um, tightness or anything like that, is that we have positioned design and this, there's a kind of a big um, running conversation about design systems as infrastructure uh, and, and essentially basically positioning design systems as a cost center. And it's like, well, the more we position co- uh, design systems as cost centers, the more it's going to be on the chopping block anytime there's anything up for discussion. It's like, what can we afford to cut right now? You know, it's like when you're when you're doing your home budget and you're like, I guess I don't need Netflix, you know, for the next six months. It's like, well, because because it doesn't provide any value to you other than entertainment or other than like, you know, it's, it's something that's not really good for me, but I really like it. Okay, fine. Well, I'll cut that, you know. And, mm-hmm. and if we look at, look at design systems that way, then it's like, then it feels like a thing that we can cut and things that feel like they can be cut usually will be cut. 
if instead we can figure out how to position a design system as an innovation enabler or a retention enabler or things that really propel the work that is important to us that we cannot cut, that, that is crucial to our organization and the way that we do work and, and things like that, the more it will be like, well, we can't cut that. You know, like a lot of startups that are engineering led, they don't lay off engineers. They lay off everybody else. You know, a lot of startups that are design led, they don't lay off designers. They lay off everybody else. So whatever they see as crucial, that's the thing that they keep. Okay, we can get away with less design ops. So design ops folks, we can't get away with less designers. We can get away with you know less less VPs. We can't get away with less engineers. Right. So like, how can a design system be in that conversation? We can get away with you know a, a smaller CMS, but we can't get away with a smaller design system. Like, how do we make design systems be that important to our work? And right now, if we think about it as definitions, you know, or things like that, then then it's not. It, it's not that important enough. You know, it's not important enough, even to the way that we fund them, right? So like, you know, to, to get into the weeds of this a little bit, like design systems usually exist between, you know, in the way that, that organizations, big organizations fund things like this, initiatives like this, it either goes into the capital expenses bucket or the operational expenses bucket. And those things pay for different things in an organization, you know? And so the way that we've generally been do, we've been looking at design systems is it is an operational expense. And that's the wrong place for it to be it should be a capital expense you know and 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 even that even something as small as that changes the way that we think about it and think about thing and the way that we we see it so you know to get back to your question what's the future of design systems i think part of it is up to us to make the case that design systems are a crucial thing that we can't go without you know and for a lot of organizations that's hard to make that's a hard case to make because hey we've been we've gone without it for a while now we haven't had it yet and we're doing okay. We seem to be doing okay. So if we can't make the case quickly of, yeah, we were doing okay without it before, but in the last three months that we've had this, look how much we've unlocked. You know, I've worked with organizations that that have projected in the next six months, we're going we're gonna to unlock $250 million of innovation. $250 million? That's not something to scoff at. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's a lot of money. And that is more than we were expecting to make in this whole line of business this year. You know, and so I think we need to be making those kinds of conversations. We need to have those kind of conversations around design systems. Without that, design systems are always going to be a thing that's like a nice to have, you know, but always going to be the first to go whenever we need to tighten the purse strings. Yeah, I think what you're alluding to, but you haven't said yet, is there's a huge host of net benefits in the design system orchestration once it's successfully implemented. And you talk about innovation, but you first have to say, well, because some of the routine work is out of the way, so now we're looking at business problems that matter and design solutions that could be born out of an innovative mindset that is unlocked because this is in place. And those are the types of discovery that you can't really have unless you've done it the right way, which is why I think you're right. We're at an inflection point the book you've written is really critical, I think, for that mind shift. Just the conversation about CapEx and, and OpEx, I mean, that's a mindset. And you've really well articulated the points at which you're going to need to make some decisions about how you're thinking about a design system. What are the conversations you're having? And what are the circumstances where the, the critical components of a design system need to come together? And you know, I'm a huge believer that putting something in the in the foreground that's going to unlock a future for us from design maturity through design culture and taking operations seriously to the point where, yes, innovation can happen now because we've stopped having those arguments about, you know, what are the button colors and how, what's the radius and all that stuff. Hugely important, but nobody sees it right now. 
because the things that we need in place aren't fully there yet. So good timing on the book. I think 2024, just only opportunity for digital organizations to get their shit together, for us to really start talking about how we sense and respond at scale. And I think for organizations, not just to be thinking, yes, about our consumer product and how that's working. And I think that's important. You've made that point. But also, what is it going to take for us to operationalize everything on the back end of that in a way that we're all equally scaling our practice and our processes? So it's a great book, encouraging everyone to read it. And Dan, it's been almost an hour here. I just want to thank you for your time and, and just say, is there anything we didn't talk about today that uh, maybe you were hoping I'd bring up, but we didn't, we didn't get to it? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I'll, I'll just kind of follow up on what you last said, because we didn't talk about this yet, and this may be a good, a good closer for us, which is, I, I had this boss once who anytime anyone would say anything, he would say, as a joke, he would say, prove it. And it was a, it was a joke every time, but like it, that would happen on like casual conversations. It would happen when we were talking about work stuff or design stuff or things like that. And I think that's the, the crux of like, we talk, a, we all talk a big game about design systems and how they can unlock innovation and efficiency and consistency and all that. And it's like, okay, prove it. And I think that that's a thing that we are all reticent and sometimes unprepared to be able to do is we know all the theory, we know all the, all the, like how, what it could do and what it could unlock. And it unlocked it for them and this company and that company over there. It's time for us to prove it now. You know, and the longer it takes for us to prove that stuff, the harder it is for us to make the case that we've been trying to make. And so the quicker we can unlock value, you know, the quicker we can do this stuff and put all this stuff into practice, channel it into a, a sprint or a handful of sprints and go, in the next 90 days, we're going to unlock X. That's a thing that I see a lot of teams be really gun shy about. You know, when it comes to design think talk a big game, we talk a big game. And then when it comes down to like, all right, let's put some metrics on, let's, let's prove it. You know, that that's really where the rubber meets the road. So I think that's the challenge that I try to take when I'm working with a team is like, we got to prove it as quickly as we can. I think 90 days is the right time frame. And, and so I, for anybody listening, if you're in that scenario and like, you know, all the things about design systems and you read all the medium articles and all that kind of stuff, you know, all right, it's time for us to prove it. And I think the, the more we do that and the more we share our stories of us proving it and here's how it worked and here's what it unlocked, I think that's the thing that really changes that inflection point, moves it you know, in, in our favor and in our direction. Absolutely. Before we close, you've done in the past some, some workshops and you know, you've created space for people who want to take this conversation a little deeper. They want to learn some things that they can take back to their teams, put into practice. Is there any opportunities for people in 2024? Are you opening up some workshops? Absolutely, yes. So the the timing on this is really good. In February, I'm starting a workshop. I'm doing the, the next version of our live workshop at Design System University for folks that are pretty advanced with design systems and are like, I know all the, th- you know, the, the thing I was just describing, I know all the theory, I know all the, all the stuff. Like, how do I actually do this? Like, I, I know what the, the right steps are supposed to be. How do I actually prove it in a way that's, that's actionable, that I'm not just learning from my own mistakes? So I have a live cohort called Design System in 90 Days. This next one coming up goes from February to, to May, and then I'll probably run it again, once again, later in the year. That's for people who are working on design system teams and want to, a, a lot of teams actually join together so that they can do this together, you know, as part of the cohort. And you work with me for 90 days and I help coach all the folks in, in that cohort on what they're doing with their design systems. It's not, it's not academic work. It's not theory. It's not that stuff. It's like you bring the stuff that you're, you're working on at work. And then we as a cohort,
part, we discuss that stuff and what you can do at your job to get to really get design systems to have traction. So that's the that's my highest level, like advanced training. It is hard, it's difficult, you know, it, but there's a lot of transformation that comes from that for the folks in the cohort. And then a little bit later in the year, probably February, March timeframe, I've gotten a lot of requests for people who are like, I like the idea of design systems, but I'm a beginner. I, I don't, I can't take the advanced class. It's too expensive. But even if I could afford it, I wouldn't even, I don't even have the the knowledge to be able to do that. Um, so I have beginner and intermediate training coming out this year as well. Um, they're all going to be self-paced and, mm-hmm. and very uh, affordable with um, purchasing power parity for, I want everybody in the world to know about design systems, you know, and to be able to have at least some familiarity and some training to know how to do that. So that's separated into two parts. One is the theory part of of like, all right, if you just want to know the theory as the way I see it, here it is, you know, you watch it an hour or two of videos and, and you get it. And the second part is going to be like hands-on. It's going to be like, you want to get in Figma and know how to make these components? Here it is. And and you want to get in React and know how to code these components? Here it is. So one very theoretical, one very nuts and bolts. Uh, and then hopefully that gets more people comfortable and confident with their design system skill. So those are all coming up. Q1, Q1 2024. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Dan. Congratulations on the book. It's a wonderful read. And uh, yeah, if you want to hear more from Dan, we got links in the bio here. And feel free to check out the courses he just brought up. Awesome. John, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's an honor. I appreciate it. Absolutely. That's it for our show today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this chat with Dan, check out some of our past episodes. And if you're interested in joining the show to talk about digital transformation or how research and design can unlock innovation or operational excellence for the digital business of the future, go ahead and drop us a line. We'd love to have you on the show.